Last week, I spoke with you about uh, how to listen to a sermon. You remember that? Anybody remember that? How to listen to a sermon? Good. All right. That's good. That's the, if you can remember the sermon that I preached, that's the first step in learning how to listen to a sermon. But in there, I gave a number of practical suggestions or applications for that, and one of them had to do with just being regular in your attendance. You remember that? That as you are regular here, you are exposed to the systematic teaching of the Word of God, and, and the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about transformation in the life of His people. So uh, encouraging you to make that just a real habit. Don't miss church unless you absolutely have to. This morning, I want to turn to a different topic with you, and I want to talk to you about the importance of membership in a local church. Membership in a local church. And really, you could take last week's sermon and this week's sermon, and you could put them together, and seeing how this is the month of April, you could sort of call this a theological spring cleaning. This is a little bit of theological spring cleaning for us, and the, and the purpose of it is to, is to, like any other spring cleaning, it's to throw out the junk, it's to wash off the dirt, it's to open the windows and, and air out the house, as it were, and that we might think biblically as we go into this really new year together, and in particular to think biblically about the local church. So this is about the local church. And the word church itself appears all over the New Testament, right? The word ecclesia, it is everywhere in the New Testament. It's used about 110 times in the New Testament. It's a very, very popular word in the New Testament. And out of that 110 occurrences, very few of them, uh, and there's some difference of opinion here, but very few of them, perhaps 17 or so occurrences, are a reference to what is known as the universal church or the, you know, the, the universal body of Christ comprising all the believers of all the, you know, the age of the church together. But the, but the predominant use of the term church in the New Testament, the word ecclesia, about 90 plus times is a reference to the local church. It's a reference to the local church. And the reason I tell you this is because as you read the New Testament, you would do well when you read about the church to think about local church. Kind of like when, uh, when Doug Bookman was here and was talking about the humanity of Christ, when you, when you read in the Gospels, think first of his humanity and, if, and then resort to his deity. Well, I think here, when you read about church, when you read about church in the New Testament, I want you to think in terms of the local church. Think in terms of the local church. There are all kinds of ideas floating around out here today in our society, wrong ideas with regard to what is the local church. What is the local church? Well, let's just dispense with a few of those wrong ideas. The local church is not a club. Okay, so we can just start with that. The local church is not a club that one would join, like the Elks Club. The local church is not a voluntary association in which membership is optional, and I will return to that. The local church is not a friendly group of people who get together because they share common religious commitments. That might be a Bible study, but that's not a church. The church is not a local service provider that's attempting to win your business. 
The church belongs to God. And it was purchased with the precious blood of his own son, Acts 20, 28. The church is not a result of human ingenuity, organization, but is instead a divinely conceived entity whose purpose is the glory of God through the transformation of its members. The church is divinely conceived, purchased with the blood of Christ, whose purpose is the glory of God through the transformation of its members. The local church is hugely significant in the New Testament. Beloved, there are two modern concepts that float around that are really unknown in the New Testament. Two concepts that are really unknown to the New Testament, but are common today. And they are this. Unbaptized Christians, unbaptized Christians, and followers of Jesus Christ who are not members of a local church. Both of those are basically unknown to the New Testament. I want to deal with membership. So this morning, I'd like to ask and answer for you two critical questions regarding church membership. Why? So that you would join and become intimately part of a local church. Ideally, this local church, but if not here, then somewhere. That you would join and become part of a local church. Okay, so two questions. The whole sermon's constructed around these two questions. Question number one. If membership is so important, if membership is so important as I will contend here, then why don't we find an explicit command in the New Testament, right, to join the church, to have church membership? Why can't we find it in the Bible? And that's a good question. We should start with that one. Why don't we find an explicit command for church membership in the Bible if it's so important? If it's so important. Are you ready for the answer? The reason we don't find an explicit command is because the Bible assumes church membership. It assumes it. It's foundational to the New Testament. As I say, the two things, the two concepts that are unknown in the New Testament are unbaptized Christians and followers of Christ who are not part of a local church. The Bible doesn't know about this. I'd like to be so bold as to say that official membership is one of the defining features of the people of God. It's all through the Bible. As I say, the Bible assumes it, And so if it assumes it, it must appear all through it. And that's what I'd like to do is to demonstrate to you first that the idea of some kind of official listing, some kind of knowledge of who's part and who's not part is woven throughout the Bible. So let's begin at the beginning, and I'll take you back to the book of Genesis and then open it up to chapter 5. We'll go all the way back to chapter 5.
The Old Testament has all kinds of lists, many, many lists, and the purpose of these lists, among others, but I would say the primary purpose of these lists is to identify the people of God. To identify the people of God. Who's in, who's not in? Who are the people of God? And so you go back to Genesis chapter 5, and there we bump into the genealogies, right? And here in chapter 5, we find the genealogy of, of Adam through Seth, right? Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. He named him Seth. And then it'll go on and it'll talk about this one who lived and that one who lived and died and so forth. And in the end, verse 32 of chapter 5, we arrive at Noah. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we have a listing here, an official registry of the people of God beginning with the faithful son of Adam, Seth, following all the way through to Noah. If you roll ahead in Genesis, and I'll take you over to chapter 11. Chapter 11, and picking it up in uh, verse 10 of chapter 11. There in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 10, we pick up one of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here we pick up the, the record of the genealogies of Shem. You see it in verse 10. So we have Seth to Noah to Shem, and if you follow from chapter 11, verse 10, all the way through to verse 32 of that same chapter, where you arrive at Terah, you arrive at the father of Abraham. So you go Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham. You have the direct lineage listed for you. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And the purpose is that it gives you the official record of the people of God all the way to Abraham, the father of the faithful. The Old Testament includes listings of who are the people of God. We see it further demonstrated for us in the book of Numbers. So roll over to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1. We have another census, right? Another listing. Hard name, begat hard name, begat hard name. Right? You know how it goes. And numbers, right? That's why the book's called Numbers. And when you finally get to the end of chapter 1 here, or, or verse 46, close enough, and they're added all up, you get 603,550, Right? Verse 46, chapter 1 of the book of Numbers. Now, here's something really interesting. If you will kind of hang on to that in your mind and then turn backwards to Exodus chapter 12, I want to show you something. Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Exodus 12, verse 37. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, 
along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. What I want you to see is the mixed multitude that went with them. And notice they are not included in the numbering in the book of Numbers. Why? Why are they not counted among the, the, the children of Israel that went out from Egypt? And the answer is it's because they are a mixed multitude. That is, they are not part of the people of God. They don't make the registry. They're not included. They're not considered part of the people of God. We can turn further to the right, uh, following the book of Second Chronicles, to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra covers the time from the return after the Babylonian captivity, about 536 B.C. In chapter 2 of Ezra, we find recorded for us in verse 1, Now these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. These came with Zerubbabel, and then we start to find, again, all of these names, and notice the numbers next to the names. Very specific numbers. Very specific numbers. Who cares? I mean, step back and you could just say, well, like, who cares that, um, oh, I don't know, how about 42 sons of Asmavet, down there in verse 24, right? Or verse 29, I'm just picking names that I can pronounce here. The sons of Nebo, verse 52. I mean, it's very interesting, don't you think? It's kind of unique that they would, they would list these people to such detail. You don't know whether there's 52 verses 42 verses 98 and verse 16 unless somebody's doing what? You know what I mean? Somebody's counting it. Somebody's writing it down because they cared. It was important to know who were part and who were not part, who were with them, who were not with them. And as you read later here in the, in the chapter, there were those who could not prove their genealogies. They could not prove, in this case, with regard to the priesthood. They could not prove who their fathers and, and grandfathers were and so forth, and so they were excluded from the priesthood. It was important to them. It was important to them. So why do I take it all of this? Just to show you that from the beginning, the people of God have always known who's with us and who's not with us. And they wrote it down. They wrote it down. We can flip all the way over to the New Testament, to John's Gospel, and in John chapter 9, that amazing account of the man born blind, right, where Jesus restores his sight Man born blind, congenitally born blind, and Jesus restores his sight. Never has anyone heard of that, they say. And the Pharisees are so sure that uh, this, they can't deny the reality here, but they want to deny the reality, and so they're, they're, they're twisting and turning in the wind in every direction they can to try to deny the reality of this, and they, and they call in the, the, the man's parents in um, 
Oh, where is it here? Well, we'll pick it up in 18. Then the Jews who did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's the point I want you to pick up from this. He would be put out of the synagogue. How could they put them out of the synagogue? The only way they could put them out of the synagogue is to know who is in the synagogue, who is part of the synagogue. And so the Jews were very, very careful. They kept very careful and close records of membership in the synagogue system. They knew exactly who was part of the synagogue and who was not part of the synagogue. We can go further into the New Testament, into the book of Acts. And we can notice the passages of numbering that occur in the book of Acts. You can say, well, you know, that was all the Jews, right? Oh, they had these elaborate genealogies, and yeah, they kept track of the synagogue. Okay, I I agree to all of that, but hey, this is the church, man. You know, it's grace. It's grace, you know. But notice, when you go to Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, Verse 41, Peter preaches that amazing sermon, the Spirit of God is moving. Verse 41, so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 souls. Unless they were incredibly good at estimating crowds, coming in and out of the waters of, baptistry, of, the, of baptism, right? Because they were baptized and they were added to the church. I think you have to understand this, as somebody was keeping track. Somebody was keeping track. And in, in fact, when you let your eyes go down to verse 47 of the same chapter, it says, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Added to their number. There's an official um, tally. There's a record. These ones are in. These ones are not in. These ones have been baptized and publicly declared their their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? They They will follow him, and they are added to the registry. Notice when you continue ahead, Peter preaches again. And you get over to uh, chapter 4 and verse 4. Where it says, verse 4 of chapter 4, But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Came to be about 5,000 now. Again, a round number, yes. But I think you have to understand this process of they knew who were part of the church and who were not part of the church. And they kept a record. And they kept a record. 
And why can I be so sure of that? Well, keep turning. Go to chapter 6. Because there we, we encounter that, that problem in the early church with regard to the, to the benevolence ministry for the, for the widows, right? There in chapter 6. And so there, were, there, was a, there was a benevolence listing. There was, a, there was a record of who would receive the daily uh, provision of bread. And you, you know, that could be bread, that could be money to buy bread, regardless. There was a list of who got assistance and who didn't. Look it. Now at this time, verse 1, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of bread. Who gets the bread? The widows of Jerusalem, right? All widows of Jerusalem. Is that what it says? No, it does not say that. The widows that get the bread are those that are associated with the church. The problem is between the Hellenistic widows, right, and the native widows. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in the charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose uh, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they put, uh, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. These men were set aside and the, with congregational affirmation, and they were put in charge of the task of providing for the benevolence needs for the widows of the church. Not the widows of the city of Jerusalem, but the widows of the church. We see it in Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. That is, those who are really widows in the sense that they are really and totally and completely dependent upon the people of God to care for them. They're reliant upon God who ministers to them through the hands and feet of his own people. But what I want you to see in particular is verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man and so forth. There are these qualifications. But notice she is put on the list. There's a list. In other words, they know exactly which widows are part of the church and which widows are not part of the church. The widows that are part of the church, the church undertakes, if necessary, their full and entire sustenance. It's a sacred responsibility and duty. Not to all widows in general, to those that are part of the church. Elder oversight assumes distinguishing a specific group of people. Elder oversight itself assumes the distinguishing of a specific group of people. Who are the elders responsible for? Every single person who happens to, to show up someday, or is it those who are part of the church? The New Testament would show you by prescript or description, rather, that it is those who are uh, part of the church. And so I'll you'll show that to you beginning in Acts chapter 20. 
Verse 28. All right, why doesn't the New Testament give an explicit command for membership? Answer, because it assumes membership. Elder oversight assumes membership. Verse 28, be on guard. Paul speaking here to the elders of Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Right? Be on guard for yourself and for the flock among which, among which, in other words, the flock which that you are part of, that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of, to shepherd the church of God. That is the local church. He's speaking to local elders in Ephesus here. You go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Elder oversight assumes a specific and identifiable group of people. 1 Thess chapter 5. Verse 12. Verse 5 and verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, writing here to the believers, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Those who diligently labor among you. Again, the idea is that there is a group of people in which the elders are working diligently among this group of people. Who are the elders responsible for? They are responsible for the membership of a local church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Qualifications for an elder. 1 Timothy 3.5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not the universal church, the local church. A man's ability to, to disciple believers is, is proved in his home. And a man who shows himself successful there is then qualified, Paul says, to shepherd a larger family, the church of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul. In other words, there is, there is an accountability factor going on in a local church between its leadership and the, and the congregation of the people itself. Paul doesn't, or whoever you think wrote Hebrews doesn't say here, that you are to, to submit to, to whatever elder there is anywhere out there or whatever Bible teacher you hear on the internet, you know, because you know what? They don't keep watch over your souls. They're not accountable for your soul at all. The men who are accountable for your soul are here. And so the command is to, is to submit to their leadership here in this local church. 
We'll give you one more. First Peter five two. First Peter five two. Elder oversight assumes distinguishing a specific group of people. Hebrews 13, 17 was written to the congregation with regard to how they're, respond, they're supposed to respond to the elders. 1 Peter 5, verse 2 is written to the elders as to how they're supposed to interact with the people. And it says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Shepherd the flock of God among you, or as the NIV translates it, shepherd the flock of God under your care. Under your care. Again, the idea here is that there is a, there is a discernible group of people, a flock that the elders are responsible to shepherd. Not all people generally, but a specific group of people. How will they know who they are responsible for? Membership. Let's keep going. Church discipline assumes a public knowledge of who is in the church and who is not in the church. Church discipline assumes a public knowledge of who is in and who is not. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, that classic passage, Matthew 18, the classic passage here on laying out the, the procedures of redemptive church discipline. So you go to your brother in private, right? If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen to you, then take a couple along with you in order that the facts of the case can be established. If he won't listen to them, then Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Well, how can you tell it to the church unless you know who the church is? And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, outside of the redemptive community. Well, tell it to the church. It can't be the, it can't be the universal church here. And we're going to do take out ads in the newspaper. It has to be a local church setting with an identifiable group of people. Those who are in, those who are not. We saw over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, same, same idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 11. Paul writes, he says, <clears throat> I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. But what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, there has to be an identifiable group. You can't remove them from you unless you know that they're part of you to begin with. And Paul is clearly saying here is that this is not to cut yourself off from sinners. It's to cut yourself off from someone who claims the name of Christ, yet by an unrepentant, unbroken pattern of rejecting Christ, they are a so-called brother. They are a so-called brother. 
The epistles were written to local congregations. They were written to local congregations, and this assumes then that they were known to each other and that they gathered together to hear the letters read. They were gathered together to hear the, red, the letters read. You can see this all over the New Testament. I'll show you a few places. I guess I better pick up the pace here a little. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome. Who is Romans written to? To all who are beloved of God in Rome. Well, how do you know who are beloved of God in Rome? Rome's the imperial capital of the city, of the, of the empire. It's the, right? it's the imperial city. How do you possibly know who this letter is addressed to? There can only be one way. There are identifiable uh, mechanisms by which they know who's in, who's not in. And the letter is written to those who are in. And you can see this all over the New Testament in the, in the salutations of the New Testament epistles. And maybe one more, just for good measure. God himself keeps a list. God himself keeps a list of those who will inherit eternal life. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There is a written record of who is in and who is not. Why is there no explicit command for church membership in the Bible? Answer, because the Bible assumes it everywhere. Second question. What are the benefits of membership? You remember the old American Express Commercial, right? Membership has its, I think they use privileges or something like that. But there are benefits to church membership. It's, it's not just a one-way kind of thing. There are real and legitimate Christian benefits to church membership, and I'd like to enumerate them for you. And there are four of them that I'm going to enumerate this morning. So here they are. Benefit number one of church membership is evangelism. Evangelism. What in the world do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. When Christ redeems us, he places us into a new society, right? Called the church. He puts us in the middle of, of a group of people. He joins us to a group of people that we ordinarily would not associate with. He draws us from all kinds of realms of humanity and, and crosses over all of the natural divisions that hold people apart and, in fact, often put people at each other's throats, and he puts us together in one group called the church, and he reconciles us not just to himself but to each other. We see it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. The end of verse 2, we've been renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Well, you're still a Jew, you're still a Greek, you're still uncircumcised, you're still circumcised, right? You're still a barbarian, you're still a Scythian, you're still a slave, or, or you're still a free man. That doesn't go away. What goes away is the significance of it all. 
as in terms of your standing before God. And you are brought together into this one new group. And it's, this new group is, is called the church is expressed with terms of, of familiarity and, and intimacy. It's called a body. It's called a family. It's called a, a community. And it's a group in which love prevails. Love prevails, right? Ephesians 4.3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Bring us together. You know, we're to be diligent to, to, to work out what God has worked in, this unity of the spirit. How do we enter it? We enter it through faith. Faith in the, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we publicly identify as members of the new community through baptism. And then we publicly renew our commitment to the new community regularly through the Lord's table. In other words, we, we have been given by Christ these two ordinances, these two signs that set us apart from the rest of the world. We enter the new community through the sign of baptism. And we renew the commitment to the new community every time we take the Lord's table together. This is in contrast to the world, right? The world is all about looking out for number one. It's a fractured place. It's a, it's a, a place with striving, clawing, backbiting, scheming. That's the world. But the church is otherworldly, right? You go down to go up. You love and serve rather than seeking to be served. You forgive and are forgiven. You, you demonstrate care and concern for other people. You gather to worship the living God. This marks us out from the rest of society. And that kind of an environment is incredibly evangelistic. Incredibly evangelistic. And, and it appeals to a broken world. Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Love for another one. In other words, if, if we live according to the spiritual reality of who we are, a new community, a new people, a church, a church. Membership helps us discern who is in, who is out, where our efforts of service need to be focused. Who are to be the recipients of this kind of otherworldly love? It is the local church. Second benefit, sanctification. The second benefit of church membership is sanctification. According to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, God's great purpose in predestination is to transform his enemies into his children so that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brethren. To transform his enemies into his children. So that Jesus will be firstborn among many brethren. And the agent of change is the Holy Spirit working through his word. He instructs us and he empowers us towards Christ-like living. That process is called sanctification. It's called sanctification. And John Piper has correctly noted that sanctification is a community project. It is a community project. In other words that outside of the community of the local church, you cannot grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
The only way to truly accomplish what the New Testament sets out before us is by being part of a local church. What do I mean? Well, let's just start with the easy ones. How about the fruit of the Spirit? Right? Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think you got it made? Check it out in the context of a local church. Right? That's where these things are demonstrated. That's where we learn what it means to be patient with somebody, to love somebody, to serve somebody, to exercise self-control. Fruit of the Spirit is not demonstrated privately, but publicly, as we rub shoulders with other believers in the context of a local church. All the one another's throughout the New Testament, there's about 50 of them. They all require community to practice them. I'm just going to go through them quickly. We're not going to turn to them all. I don't have time today. But here they are. Be devoted to one another, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Be devoted to one another. Same chapter, same verse, Romans 10, 12. Give preference to one another. Romans 15, verse 7. Accept one another. Accept one another. And, and there, notice the context of Romans 15. Romans 15 follows Romans 14. So what? Well, Romans 14 is all about um, intense difference of opinion, in this case, over meat or non-meat, right? Wine or no wine. So we are, to, we are to embrace one another. We are to accept one another in the context of difference of conscience. Deeply held difference of conscience. But we are to accept one another. In other words, you can't have the church of the meat eaters and the church of the veg people. What, what do they call them? Vegans. <laughs> you know which side I'd fall in, right? Right? We've got the church of the wine drinkers and the church of the non-wine drinkers. Although often we want to do such things. But the profound lesson here in Romans 15 is we are to accept one another I would say not, dis, not despite our profound difference, but as a celebration of the, of the grace of God that overcomes our profound differences. Galatians 5.13, we're to serve one another. Ephesians 4.2, we're to show tolerance to one another. Ephesians 4.32, we're to be kind to one another. Colossians 3.9, we're not to lie to one another. Colossians 3.16, we're to admonish one another. 1 Thess, chapter 4, verse 18, we're to comfort one another. 1 Peter 1.22, we're to fervently love one another. In other words, stretch it out to the limits. We're not to just love when it's convenient, but we're to, we're to fervently love one another. We're to be stretched out in our love for one another. One more, 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another. Listen, all of these one another's, and that's just a few of them, necessitate community, close community, close community. In the strength of the New Testament, we can clearly say, you want to grow in the likeness of Christ, you must become a member of a local church. You must become intimately involved in a local church if you want to grow in the likeness of Christ. Why? Because it's in the local church that the greatest concentration of the grace of God through the gospel is available to you. It's here in a local church. 
with all of our warts and wrinkles. It's here. Because it's in us. It's not this building. It's us. It's us. First benefit, evangelism. Second benefit, sanctification. Third benefit, elder oversight. The third benefit of membership is elder oversight. We looked at it already just briefly in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. They keep watch over your souls. In other words, the elders are God's appointed means of guarding the welfare of his people. The idea of keeping watch implies danger, right? You don't need to keep watch if there's nothing to be worried about. But if there is danger, then you got to keep watch. And the elders keep watch. What kind of dangers threaten us? Well, according to, to Titus chapter 1 and verse 10, false teachers. False teachers are a danger to the flock. And the elders have to keep watch over it. They need to guard against it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 speaks about spiritual pitfalls that are dangerous. People can, can stumble and fall down into sin, and, and they, need to be, they need to be, with grace, lifted up from that sin, brought, brought up and out of it. 1 Thess chapter 5 and verse 14, there are, there are those that are spiritually weak Christians that need to be guarded, and the elders have a responsibility to do so. Are the elders responsible for every single person who comes through the door? No. No. They're responsible to, to provide this kind of watch care for those who are under their charge. For those, look at again at the verse 17. For those for whom they will give an account. In other words, Christ is going to say to them, these were the souls you are responsible for. How did you do? How did you do? Maybe this is a good place as any to address this. Um, some people are unconvinced by this line of argumentation, and they would say that membership is a matter of personal preference. There's a non-moral matter of personal preference. Your preference is membership. My preference is no membership. You, have, you keep your preference, I'll keep mine. This is what I would say to you. If that's your opinion on all of this, then in the light of chapter 13 and verse 17 of Hebrews, where it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, you need to submit your personal preference to theirs. And if the elder's personal preference is membership, if you think this whole thing is personal preference, but if it's the elder's personal preference, then you have to submit yours to theirs. So you still don't get out of it. But I'd like to argue and have been arguing with you that it's much more than personal preference at stake here. Fourth, fourth and probably the most shocking of them all, particularly in light of the uh, individualized um, nature of, of American society. And here it is. The fourth benefit is the assurance of salvation. Now listen carefully to me. I preached this sermon a bunch of years ago and somebody got really mad at me. 
and said, I, I, you said that I can't be a Christian if I'm not a member of this church. I did not say that. I didn't say it then. I'm not going to say it now, okay? So don't think I'm saying that. I'm not. But what I'm telling you is that one of, one of the, the, the most compelling evidences that will assure you of your salvation is your involvement and membership in a local church because God has set it up that way. All right? So here we go. Let me see if I can unfold this. In fact, I, I sit here in my notes, and I think it's true. One of the main ways, one, one, one of, one of the main ways, okay, you, you catch my drift here, not the only way, one of the main ways we receive assurance of salvation is through membership in a local Bible teaching church. Why do I say that? It is because membership in a local Bible teaching church establishes the boundaries of who is part of the family of God and who is not. That is one of the roles and functions of the local church. Mark Dever, in his writing, it's quoted actually in a, in a different book called Stop Dating the Church, which, by the way, I would recommend to you. Joshua Harris wrote that book some time ago. It's called Stop Dating the Church. But he has a quote in here from um, Mark Dever. The quote goes like this. The local church is there to verify or falsify our claims to be Christians. The local church is there to verify or falsify our claims to be Christians. How do we know someone's a Christian or not? It is the role of the local church to verify that claim or to falsify that claim. He goes on and he says, The man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his father's wife thought of himself as a Christian. You think about that. Paul instructs the church there to do what? Put him out before, because he is a so-called brother, a so-called brother. In other words, that man thought, hey, I'm a Christian, and I got grace, and I can live how I like. No. No, you can't. So how does a local church verify or falsify our claims to be Christian? I'll give you two ways. The first is doctrinal clarity. The local church provides doctrinal clarity. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says there about the church that it is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, the local church, and in particular its elders, and in its elders resides the collective wisdom and understanding of the Scriptures that exceeds the individual attainment of any one of us. Any one of us. There's not a man or a woman here this morning in the sound of my voice who has a knowledge of the Word of God and a, and a, and a um, submission to the Word of God that exceeds that of a group of godly men. It is very easy to become zealous and unbalanced. Very easy. Particularly when our theology is untested and unrefined by the wisdom of the older generations, right? 
That's why it's so important who are the elders and who aren't. The elders have to be men who know the Bible. Men whose lives have proven that they not only know it, but they know how to order their lives accordingly. Have to be mature men of God. 2 Timothy 2.22, Paul warns young men, flee youthful lusts. Flee youthful lusts. In the context there, by the way, uh, the youthful lusts, I think is uh, spoken of in verse 14, the wranglings about words, which lead to, the, they're useless and lead to the ruin of the hearers. In other words, arguments about theological minutiae. It's very easy as an individual person to get fixated on one particular doctrine and to get out of balance on that doctrine, whether it's, you know, election and predestination or free will or whatever, you know, people get it, they get all these things in their craw and they, it's up to the, to the balanced group of, of men that oversee the church that, that provides these boundaries to you to, you know, People tell me, hey, if, you know, if you're Arminian, you can't be Christian. Come on. Or if you're a Calvinist, you don't love anybody. Come on. No. All right, it is the local church. It is the local church as it correctly understands and teaches the Bible that provides the theological fences, outside of which it is neither wise nor safe to go. In another book called Church Membership, Jonathan Lehman writes, quote, the local church guards the reputation of Christ by sorting out true professors from the faults. True professors from the faults. How do they do it? They maintain doctrinal truth, right? They maintain the doctrinal statement of the church. Secondly, they maintain the moral purity of the church. The moral purity of the church. In other words, church discipline. Right? God is very serious about the moral holiness among his people. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and following, he says, Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And the reason Paul says don't be deceived, he speaks of later in chapter 15 and verse 33, where he says don't be deceived again. Bad company corrupts good morals. So there is a, there is a moral purity to the church that provides the, the, the assurance of our salvation by, by coming alongside of us and either affirming our walk of faith or saying, hey, you are out of bounds. You can't be living with this woman before you're married. Well, what do you mean I can't? Everyone else does. Well, everyone else is not a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you must not do this. You must repent. You must repent. And if you refuse to repent, then we will bring you to the place of either repentance through church discipline, or if you persist in showing yourself hard-hearted, then we will treat you as an unbeliever, a tax collector and a Gentile, and we will exclude you from the body. 
Now that's tough medicine. That's tough medicine. But it provides the fence. And boy, does our society need fences, don't you think? All right, here we go. Let's close, let's close it down. Maybe before this morning, you were ignorant about church membership. You could have said, well, you know, hey, I came from a church where they didn't practice it, didn't teach it. I didn't really know anything about it. Guess what? You are ignorant no longer. You are ignorant no longer. That means that you're faced with a decision. You got a decision. What are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do with what you've heard today? You really basically have two choices. One is to ignore it. One is to ignore it. And I, and I would just say, please, don't ignore the Word of God. I mean, if it's wrong, if the, if the person teaching it is wrong, then you must ignore it. But if they're teaching it correctly, don't ignore it. Don't train your heart and your head to ignore the Word of God. If you're not part of a, of a local Bible teaching church, regular in your attendance, active in your service, and faithful in your financial support, you need to become one. Either here or somewhere else. You need to become one. And if you're involved here, if this is your place, if this is, this is you know, you say, this is my church, I'm, I'm here, this is where I want to be, these are the people I love, these are the people who love me, then... A membership class starts on May 6th. That's your application point. The membership class starts on May 6th. Three weeks, three Sundays, nine o'clock. And make your commitment. Make your commitment. By the way, uh, if you are 18 or above, let's just clarify that in case there was any confusion. 18 or above and you profess the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are baptized to make public that profession. And you renew that profession monthly as we take communion. And this is your place. Then you need to join. Let's pray. Our Father, um, the Word of God wounds and the Word of God heals. The Word of God confronts us where we are and reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our Father, it's not our intention to twist anyone's arm this morning or to browbeat anyone against their conscience. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the truth of his word to his people. And Lord, that the compelling case of both Old and New Testament that the people of God have always been readily discernible, known to each other and known to the world at large. That in this particular day and age and in this place involves a formality of membership. Our Father, we of course would not try to universalize our own application throughout all time and in all contexts. 
beauty of the Word of God is that it can be applied many ways, one truth, many applications. But Father, for us here in the year 2001 in Upland, California, at Foothill Bible Church, the application is a formal membership process, a formal declaration of attachment. And so, Father, may you work this morning to uh, make it make it well known to all of us. Accomplish your purposes in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.